You're listening to The Right Process, a podcast in which one writer tells the story of completing one work from concept to completion. I'm your host, Charlie Jensen. The Right Process is brought to you by the Writer's Program at UCLA Extension, helping you reach your writing goals one page at a time. Enroll now at uclaextension.edu. Hi, my name is Stuart Beatty, and I wrote a script called Danger Close, The Battle of Long Tan. Stuart Beatty is an Australian screenwriter and filmmaker. He began his career writing screenplays for Australian independent films, then branched into Hollywood with Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl, and the Tom Cruise thriller Collateral, and three adaptations, Derailed, 30 Days of Night, and 310 to Yuma, starring Russell Crowe and Christian Bale. Stewart's other scripts include the Baz Luhrmann epic Australia and the blockbuster action film G.I. Joe, The Rise of Cobra. On television, Stewart wrote one of the four award-winning episodes of the Australian miniseries Deadline Gallipoli, starring Sam Worthington. And in theater, Stewart co-wrote the book for Jim Steinman's musical Bad Out of Hell. Danger Close, The Battle of Long Tan is a true story, set in August 1966 in a rubber plantation in South Vietnam. 108 Australian and New Zealand soldiers head out from their base on a routine patrol and run into 2,500 North Vietnamese soldiers coming to attack the base. The film focuses on the company commander, Harry Smith, a former Special Forces soldier who feels he is too good for his standard infantry company, most of whom were drafted. He trains them harder than any other company in the battalion and it is only because of that training they survive. One of his soldiers, a young draftee named Paul Large, is a typical Aussie country kid who could have evaded the draft because he worked on a farm, but decided to serve when his number was called. By the end of the battle, both men's lives are changed irrevocably. In August uh, 1966, 108 Australian and New Zealand soldiers walked out of their base in Nui Dat, South Vietnam, and uh, within about four or five kilometers ran into two and a half thousand North Vietnamese uh, soldiers who were on their way to wipe out the base because it had just been built just a couple of months ago. They ran headlong into them and they both surprised each other. They ended up in a four-hour uh, battle during which 18 uh, Australians were killed and several hundred Vietnamese soldiers were killed. And it was a very fierce, nasty close battle, all fought on, on about the size of a football field. And it, it ended up the Australians emerged victorious. The, the, the Vietnamese eventually withdrew. And it was just a, a vicious battle, the biggest battle that the Australians fought in the Vietnam War. And it, uh, was, a, it was fought mainly by conscripts, you know, 19-year-olds, 20-year-olds who never wanted to be in the military and certainly didn't know why we were in Vietnam in the first place, who fought and, and, and many of them gave their lives. And so as a country... In Australia, we just don't talk about the Vietnam War very much. It wasn't a very popular war. Even those who fought it you know, don't believe that we were there for the right reasons. There was no big victory. There was no V-Day like there was in, in World War II. Or it's, it's one of those murky wars, and we really haven't told very many stories, certainly in Australia, from, from our Vietnam experience. And it's something I'd wanted to do since I came across the story in high school. It's really been a almost 30-year journey to get it on screen. But get it on screen right and do it in a way that really honors the men who, who fought and died that day on both sides. I think what drew me to the story was just the fact that it happened and not very many people know about it. I, I believe that the saying that 
history is doomed to repeat itself is true. And I don't want anything like that to ever repeat itself. And so I believe if we forget history, then you know, we are doomed to repeat it. I have young boys myself. I wouldn't want them to be conscripted and sent halfway around the world to fight a war that you know, has nothing to do with our country. So it's really uh, I, what really drew me to it was really a desire to honor those men and tell their story and uh, remind the world of, of their sacrifice, uh, of what they did all those years ago, and you know, warn our current leaders, this is what you ask of us when you make that decision to go to war. I, just, I think war is always the last resort, and it gets, it's a decision that gets made far too easily. And this is the cost, and these are the lives that you destroy, and it, it, it goes on you know, for generations. I was in a uh, modern history class. I started becoming very passionate about it and just researching more and on my own. And you know, as a high school kid, you never do more work unless you're really interested. You know, the assignment was you had to do like a three-page document on something, some aspect of the Vietnam War. And I ended up doing like, I think it was probably 120 pages with you know, color diagrams and all this kind of stuff. It was really a book that I ended up writing about it. Uh, I just became fascinated by it. I learned about the Battle of Long Tan uh, during that research. And that was especially a shock for me, I, I guess, because I would have been 17 years old and you know, some of those kids were 18 and 19. And so that really throws you when you're in your little bubble in, in the North Shore of Sydney, and you know, you think the worst thing in the world is losing the game on Sunday, Saturday, you know, and uh, you read about these kids who were fighting for their lives for four hours in a rubber plantation uh, for no good reason, and because their government told them to, basically. So, uh, I guess it was just a real eye, eye opener. And strangely enough, uh, the battle takes place in three acts. If I was inventing a battle for a movie, I really couldn't have invented it structurally any better than the way this battle happened to be fought. You know, complete with the cavalry coming to the rescue at the very end. Uh, it's just was one of those stories that seemed uniquely qualified to be a movie just because of how the actions actually played out uh, over the course of the battle. I started working on this script on my own. I would say in the 90s at some point. And by that, I mean, I just started reading. Uh, there are a lot of books about the battle, about the Australian experience in Vietnam. And I just started researching and letting all that information kind of sift in and just settle and bake, really. I, I believe you need time for a script to bake before you actually pull it out of the oven and write it, you know. So I was uh, researching everything, and then I started getting in uh, contact with some of the veterans who were actually in the battle, started talking to them, uh, watching documentaries, you know, just letting all that kind of stuff sift and, 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 and starting to see the film in my head over the years. The physical writing process of that very first draft was really like uh, opening the floodgates of a dam and just you know, the water pouring out and just trying to type as fast as I could and get it all down before, you know, the water washed away, really. I had been letting it bake for so long that I, I really did have it all in my head and I had all the books and all the all the research necessary. I knew the dialogue, the lingo, the weapons, the, the everything about it. It really was uh, probably overbaked in some ways. But uh, it, it, it really came out very quickly. I think I, I probably wrote the script in about, three or four weeks, and very much a 30,000-foot view of the war, so it had, of the battle, sorry. So it had basically everybody who was involved in every different aspect, the intelligence, the artillery, helicopters, the 
the, the soldiers on the ground, the soldiers back at the base, the commanders. It was kind of this all-encompassing top-down bird's-eye view of, of the battle. And it was big and it was expensive. And I thought, oh, I'll never get to make this because we don't usually make big films in Australia. We just don't have the money for it. So I really, yeah, I really didn't think it would happen. But it, it, it was something that I'd been talking about for so long and so I just had to get it down and do it. But it, it really was like... Uh, just you know, write and write and write and write and 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 catch it all before. It did. Uh, I was really stealing time uh, on the film that I was posting at the time. You know, post involves a lot of watching something, giving notes, and then going away for a few hours and letting them do the work and waiting for them to call you back in and go, "We fixed it," and then going back in and saying, "No, you didn't," and then repeating the process. So it really was just kind of stealing time whenever I wasn't in the sound booth or in the in the in the screening room. And, and just waiting for the guys to do the work and I would just sit down and start typing. You know, like I said, it it, it really flowed out of me. So I, I never felt like I had to kind of get back in the creative space. It was just, okay, stop in the middle of a sentence, go do what I had to do on the other film, come back, keep writing the sentence. It was uh, it was unique in that way. Not all my scripts, you know, work like that. This one was particular in that I couldn't make up stuff. You know, I couldn't change my mind about something happening because it was literally what happened and and secondly the fact that i knew it all so well by that stage i believe there's always a central relationship in a movie or usually nine nine times out of ten there's a one big central relationship and very very quickly we honed in on the uh the commander of of the company his name was uh, harry smith and this young conscript soldier named paul large both two two real people and we started to say, okay, let's let's get rid of you know all the stuff that doesn't doesn't really affect the battle, and really focus in on the guys who are involved directly in the battle, and specifically, let's focus on these two and tell a story about the relationship of these two. So it was probably in January of uh, 2018. Once we had the money and this cast started coming together, and it really actually looked like we were going to make the film. So at that point, that's when I say the real work began because we really started to make a movie out of it then and really craft this relationship, chart this journey between these two characters over the course of this big battle. I think it enhanced the structure of the storytelling because it gave you that beating heart through all of the the guns and the noise and the helicopters and the tanks and things like that. I'm a big structuralist, I believe. Like William Goldman said, the three most important things are structure, structure, structure. So we had a very solid structure going in. And once once we had that, then you can pretty much play within that structure as much as you want. Uh, spend as much time with characters as you want because that structure is going to hold up the whole way through. So I feel like once we really centered it on that relationship and made, you know, identified the the. I think it was five key scenes between those two characters over the course of the film. So we were just really just was strengthening that and then stripping away all the other stuff that didn't didn't totally need to be there. You know, you've only got two hours, so you can't hit everything. If you want to learn more, there's tons of books, there's tons of stuff online. Go look it up. Harry Smith, the commander, was a guy who was a special forces commando, and he was given this infantry company to train, and he thought that he deserved better. You know, half these kids were conscripts, were, you know, just kids, you know, babies in his opinion, and he wanted to transfer. So, you know, at the beginning of the film, he's like, you know, I'm, I'm too good for this. My men aren't worthy of me, you know. And then you've got this young kid, Paul Large, who was uh, who grew up in the country on a farm, 
and he got drafted. At the time, if you worked on a farm and you got drafted, you could get a deferment. And this kid said, no, I, I, I won't do that. I, I got called. I should go. And so he was there and he didn't have to be there. But he was a bit of a bit of a screw up too. He accidentally fired his weapon, and that's called an accidental discharge. It's a big deal. He'd been brought up in front of Harry and had his ass chewed out. So it set up a perfect dynamic where Paul Large kind of represented for Harry all the screw ups in his company and why he doesn't want to be here. And of course, over the course of the battle, you know those men, those screw ups, they prove their worth. Those nineteen year old conscripts, they prove their worth. They stand their ground. They fight and survive. So over the course of that four-hour battle, Harry's opinion changes of his men, and it changes mainly through Paul Large. So focusing on those two characters really helped us hit our themes, our bigger ideas, not just telling the story of the battle. It's a huge challenge trying to put real people up on screen as characters, because at the end of the day, it's a movie and they're characters. And the people that I have talked to who are still alive uh, who are in films that I've written, I always say to them, you have to understand now that this person I'm talking about is not you, it's a character called you by your same name. I'm not going to get everything right. I wasn't there. And even, you know, I'm, your memory is going to be tainted by just time and opinions and, and whatever else. So there is no real truth. And what, what I try and get at is the essence of that character. So I certainly don't want to, you know, uh, defame anyone or have them do anything they they didn't do or wouldn't do something that would make they you know that would make them feel bad or I just want to be honest about it and get to the truth of as much as I can get to the truth of who they were get to the essence of who they were basically. It's hard. It's hard, especially when uh, with Harry, I, I couldn't really contact Harry because he's so frail. And Paul, Paul didn't survive the battle. But I did have Paul's diary. Uh, he wrote a diary while he was there. I got a great sense of him from that diary. And a lot of, actually, his dialogue ended up coming from that diary was inspired by that diary because it really gave me his mindset. And I think at the end of the day, it's getting the mindset of the characters. It's, it's probably the most important task, getting understanding how they would think about any number of issues or how they would react in any number of scenarios. Uh, is is the key, and this, it was the same thing for Harry. And uh, because Harry was the commander of the battle, I, I had a lot of people that I could talk to because everybody interacted with Harry at some point, and everyone had their opinions on Harry at some point. I was able to create a picture uh, of him, and and Harry too had, had written a lot of things and spoken a lot of times, and there, there's a lot of record out there uh, from, verbatim uh, from him. So it's it's really studying the those those resources and I love doing that that's it's part of the fun of what I do I believe that you know if you want to be an author you have to be an authority on a on a subject that's the only way you can write authentically right so those three words author authority and authenticity all have the same latin root because you re you really can't have one without the other so it's it's a part of the process that I really enjoy I enjoy you know the the, the facts teaching me who these people are you know, because I, I do believe at the end of the day, every character you write has something of you in there, if you're doing it right. You know, if you're putting your heart and soul in, you're putting your heart and soul in. You know, the, the, there's a part of you that's in there. Even the bad characters, you know, the evil guys, they still have to have that some kind of humanity to them. And so that humanity, I think, at the end of the day, gets filled up by the writer. War movies always end up with an enemy that you have to... You know, how do you treat the enemy? How do you, how do you deal with that external force 
that is really driving the conflict. You can do it one of two ways, uh, I believe. You, you can either go to the enemy camp and you can create characters out of all of them. And then that's a choice where you're saying, okay, here's this side of this battle, here's this side of this battle, and or here's the story of these people on, on both these sides and what happened to them. We chose not to go that route just because of time. I think if you've got a story between four people, two on each side, then you can probably do that. But in a two-hour film, you just don't have time for that. I'm sure there are plenty of heroes on the Vietnamese side of that battle. I'm sure there are incredible acts of courage and, and, and amazing stories and tragic stories on their side, just as there were on the Australian side. This, this film was a deliberate choice to say, we're just going to tell the story of these 108 Australians and New Zealanders, and we're going to show you what they saw and see the enemy how they saw the enemy. So it begins as, as it began, just uh, muzzle flashes in the bush. You don't see anything at first. And then it's as the enemy keeps crawling closer and closer, you start to see shapes, figures, silhouettes, and you start to see a person and they start becoming, you start to see eyes. And, and over the, so you'll see over the course of the film, they basically just get closer and closer and closer. And, uh, and you know, never treated as, you know, uh, just objects. It's always every bullet hits, every bullet counts. You know, every life matters. You know, we say at the end of the film, it's very much a film dedicated to to the Vietnamese who died as, as much as the Australians. It is a, a film that is honoring both sides and, and, and the sacrifices both sides made. Uh, but at the end of the day, we just chose to focus on the Australian side because we only have two hours. And there was so much to get in there. We felt that was the artistic choice that we had made. I mean, I remember uh, Clint Eastwood when he made uh, Iwo Jima films. He made two. He made one from the American side and one from the, the Japanese side. I think that's a good way to do it, you know. And maybe in, in years to come, we'll do we'll do the Vietnamese side of this battle. You need that time to do it justice, to do those people justice, and really share and tell their story equally powerfully. Like I say, no no one was really there. None of these, at least the Australian side, was there trying to achieve any military objective. It was all just about survival. You know, I'm sure the Vietnamese had, you know, get out of our country on their mind. The Australians just had keep yourself alive and keep your mate alive. That's it. And it's a very, you know, human elemental level that we all reach at some point. And for these 19, 20-year-old kids, it, it, it happened out in that rubber plantation. We probably did 20 drafts of the script from that point in January. Uh, we would get actors coming on. And, you know, people usually freak out when actors start having opinions, but, you know, they have to live in those characters and they have to believe everything. And so I, I always listen to actors. I think uh, they're, they've got a unique insight and they force you to look at things that you maybe haven't looked at quite yet. So when the actors came on, I started doing drafts. You know, they started saying, can we have more of this, more of that, take that out? Does that necessary? You know, can I say this? Can I do that? Then there was a lot of, you know, working with the director, Creep Stenders, getting all his information, his notes, what he was doing. And then there was just the sheer practical realities of we don't have money for that. We don't have a location for that. We don't have time for that. You know, every film goes through this changing dialogue for actors because they're just having trouble saying the words you wrote. So, you know, you start working with them and say, okay, can you say that in a way that feels natural for you? The last thing you want is an actor to be reciting a line that you've written and that in no way feels real because just because you wrote it. You know, I, I do believe 
for as much as I, I prefer actors and everyone to stick to the script, at the end of the day, you know, actors have to feel comfortable saying those words. It has to be real. If it's if it's anything's forced, obviously it's, it's all a waste of time. So um, so nothing is sacred for me on a page, um, unless it's like a you know real thing that happened. You know, be there at four p.m. You know, if that's important. You know, but normally I, I'm saying I I just say okay, how would you say it? You know, and then of course oh there's the military advisors on a film like this. So the military advisor says yeah they would never say that. I'm like, okay, what would they say? And then it's like oh that's really cool. You know, <laughs> and so there, there's you know, all sorts of people coming in. And I think your job as a writer is, A, to be open to that, but B, also to defend the integrity of the script. Because, you know, if the military advisor had his way, you know, it would be this very dry, boring, long thing. You know, um, and, you know, every actor had his way, it would just be a soliloquy, you know, for two hours. If the director had his way, it would just be visuals and no dialogue. You know, so everyone's everyone's got their, you know, their their agenda. But, you know, from it all comes from a good place. And and I think as the writer, you've got to both be open to that and you've got to protect it. There's a lot of lobbying that goes on and you have to juggle it. Sometimes you have to remind people, okay, if, if you're going to cut that line, here's what here's the, the knock-on effect of that down the line. And just so you're aware, that's not that scene there is not going to land because that was set up by that line. And often you'll find people go, oh, yeah, okay, sorry, I didn't realize that. Because, again, you've got that macro view, whereas they're just looking at their specific thing, making sure the script comes first and the story comes first. A lot of things got cut due to budgets and time there was a whole subplot with the signals intelligence people who had an SAS patrol that were out there in that plantation and called in saying hey there's two and a half thousand NBA out here (laughs) you know warning 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 and the guy who was meant to receive that was sick on the day wasn't in and so the sheet got put in his inbox and the guys went out on patrol in that day, he would have gotten the sheet and would have said, hey, don't go out there. There's 2,500 North Vietnamese soldiers out there. So that, that so I found that fascinating. There are other subplots about getting help from American planes and countless little little things that we had to drop. Just didn't have the time for it, didn't have the space, didn't have the budget. And again, really trying to focus on the heart and soul of it, which was these guys. I never got to speak to Harry. Uh, he's very old, very frail, and lives way up north on his own. But I read, he, he'd written books, and I, and I read all the things that he'd ever written about it. And I spoke to people who, in the company, under his command and everything. I would have loved to have, have spoken to him. That was a huge part of it, was doing this for the guys who were there. We had a lot of them come to the set uh, over the course of shooting, and you could just see the emotion in their eyes when they were seeing you know, things that they had done be replicated and acknowledged. You know, these guys haven't been acknowledged in 50 years. There was also, on the day of the battle, was the first ever concert at Nui Dat, which was the name of the Australian base. So that day they had flown in this band called Cold Joy and the Joy Boys and this young 17-year-old girl, little Patty, who came in to sing for the troops. And so everyone was looking forward to going to see this concert uh, because they'd basically been in the mud and the rain for two months and this was their one moment of joy and so those guys in Delta were expecting to go to that concert and instead they got called up and said you know go out on patrol so as they left on patrol they could hear the the concert playing in the background so they never got to see it and they ended up fighting for their lives you know so we recreated that concert perfectly and put it on and the vets came to see it you know they're finally getting to see the concert 
that they didn't get to see 50 years ago and uh, and it was exact detail and everything and you just like I say you just see the emotion in their eyes and it's powerful you know it's still there very much on the surface 50 years later for all of them we had a lot of uh uh, advisors on set making it accurate. Uh, a lot of the veterans we'd spoken to, uh, we were very, very careful about accuracy. We ended up using one of the armored personal carriers that was actually in the battle. So everything is extremely detailed, extremely accurate, or as accurate as we could we could make it. You know, with 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 the stuff that we we can get a hold of today. We wanted it to feel like you're there, to really put you there. We found a, a great big rubber plantation that we were able to blow the crap out of. And we did that. I, I think it, it really does justice to, to what it must have been like in that battle. I've been on many films where, we, where I'm writing the scene like hours before we shot that. You know, I've, I've done it all. Uh, this one, there were some changes before we were shooting and some changes during. But it's something that I'm so used to by now that really didn't bother me that much. And I'm, I'm kind of used to it. On Australia, I was writing things right as we shot them. You know, I, I kind of, it gives me a bit of a buzz. You, you know, you you type it here, it comes out there, and, and there it is. That's magic. That's that's movies. So there wasn't a lot of changing going on. But yeah, like I said, I've done that so many times. It's uh, it's just a part of it. And you look, you're, you're lucky enough to be, you know, getting something made that you've written. So these are good problems to have. Working on historical stuff is always interesting to me. I, I love history. I've always loved history. Pirates of the Caribbean was so much fun because it was this world that existed you know, three, 300 years ago. And you know, recreating that world, you, know, you can have a lot of fun with that and you can have a lot, a lot of license with it. Working on something like Danger Close, however, which was only 50 years ago and people are still alive, and it is such a specific event, made it much harder uh, in the sense because I, I had to get these things right. I couldn't just invent a character that would serve a purpose for me or make this guy funny because that would be really helpful or or you know, help tell the story. I had to kind of really stick to who these people were, what they did, and and what the outcome was because that was kind of the whole point of it. So it definitely put a lot more uh, confines on me as a writer, made it harder to find essentially an you know, entertaining movie because yeah, that's what you want it to be at the end. You want people to see it, and you want people to tell their friends to see it, because you want people to, to know about it. And, and then there are things like true things that actually happened that you just would never never be able to get away with, uh, even though they really happened. You'd think they were made up, and you'd lose all credibility. I remember there was, there was one guy who told me, you know, in the middle of everyone getting shot, everyone's lying on the ground, the, the traces are coming in and inches over their heads, and this guy was just busting to piss just had to piss in the middle of the battle and didn't just lie there and let it go. He had to get up and he just dropped his gun, stood up, pissed on a tree, stood back down, got lie back down and started shooting again. And that, I don't know how that guy's alive today from all reports of the battle that you, you stick your head up an inch and you're dead. And somehow this guy managed to piss on a tree, which I would have loved to have put in the film, but I just think it would have broken all all the rules that I've set up, which is <laughs> don't stick your head up. You know, one guy did and survived. Crazy. Happened. But not good for the movie because it just would break, you know, that suspension, that that disbelief. You know, you, movies have rules that you have to follow. Once you set up those rules, you got to follow them unless you're being really experimental, which we weren't in, in this case. It's a whole different set of rules that you have to follow when you're, when you're telling a story that is, A, this specific and this close in, in time.
Yeah, making the movie is only half of it. Selling it is the other half. And we only just locked picture on it this week, I think, or last week. I know I'll be overwhelmed with, with feelings then because, like I say, this has been about a 30-year odyssey for me uh, to get this story told. And not just because I thought it was a cool story, but because I felt these these men need to be uh, honored and, and recognized uh, for what they did. I mean, it's a huge film. It's, it's one of the biggest films that's ever been made in Australia, uh, independently of Hollywood uh, and everything, which it had to be. It was a big battle and it had to have that scale and scope. So, you know, I'm... I'm, I'm, I'm I know I'm, I'm very proud to have been a part of it, to been a part of it and help telling it, very humbled by the whole experience. But it really won't feel complete to me until it's out in cinemas and people go to see it. And at that point, I hope people go to see it in, in lots of numbers, not just for the success of it, just because that's the point, was to, to kind of get this story to reach as many people as possible, not only in Australia, but around the world. So I think the journey for me will only end once it's done and once it's out in theaters like that. Because uh, now, you know, now we're getting into trailers and posters and teasers and, and marketing strategies and all that kind of stuff. So there's still a lot of work to do. And I'm a producer on the film. There's just still yeah, a lot of work to do. But, but getting it in the can, getting it finished and having it turn out as well as it has, that's been an absolute crazy ride. And like I say, I'm thrilled to be a part of it. We had this scene where Harry's second in command comes into his tent to kind of say, hey, look, I think you're t- treating, treating the guys a bit too harshly and you should go easy on them. They've done everything you've asked of them and more, you know. And I had a line in the script from Harry at the end of that speech, which was basically just, yeah, I don't really care. I don't really care. You know, they're, they're not worthy. Something along those lines. It was some kind of generic line. And then the other guy, the second-in-command guy, was like, yeah, okay, whatever. And he, and he leaves. When we shot the scene, the actor who played Harry, Travis Fimmel, they'd given him a bowl of noodles just as a prop and then he was just kind of eating. He started eating as as this second-in-command guy was giving his speech. And at the end of the speech, instead of saying his line, he just picked up the bowl and slurped on it. <laughs> and it was like this... <laughs> yeah, and, it was, and it was better than any line that I ever could have written. It really taught me that, you know, actors, you know, the good actors know what they're doing and can really do so much more without dialogue. And to always be open for that kind of thing because the, those moments make movies. And, uh, and they just kind of happen in the moment. Like I say, you, you, you absolutely should work as hard as possible on your scripts, but at the end of the day, it's a script is a blueprint for something else and nothing is sacred. You should be free to, to let anything go if a better idea comes along. And that was just one example of an you know, actor coming in and just, just nailing it you know, with a different idea where you take the line out and you do something else that's more visual. And, and says, like I say, so much more than any line of dialogue could have said. You know, then there are other actors that came on and just would nail these speeches word for word and just were f- phenomenal. And it was like, wow. And even the lines that you kind of, you know, pushed in there, wedged in there that you didn't think were very good, they make them great. I think the, the trick as a writer is to let them. What keeps me excited about the project is, is or this is a story, the characters. I think the project, in a way, sticks to you rather than you stick to the project. I've certainly had a lot of other ideas that I've totally forgotten about <laughs> over the years that just weren't good enough, I guess, or weren't interesting enough to me, or you know, my interests changed or something. I always feel like the good ones stick with you and don't let go. And I think your job is to not let it go, to always be talking about them, always be open to, to writing them or doing whatever you can to get them made. Pirates, you know, I, I wrote a script. I called it Quest of the Caribbean because I couldn't legally call it Pirates of the Caribbean. But I, I submitted that every year to Disney for 10 years before they finally came around to, you know, saying, hey, let's do a pirate movie. <laughs> Great idea. Collateral was um, 
God, I've done so many different drafts of that script over the years. No one bought it. And then one day I sold it as a pitch to HBO. Uh, it's like a Friday night thriller. I initially wrote it for HBO. So yeah, you just gotta you just gotta keep talking about them to people. Hey, yeah, I've got this script. Hey, read the, you know read the, or this idea. You know, keep them alive. You know, if, if they're sticking to you, you you stand up for them. And uh, you know, it's been my experience that eventually you know they get made. The Right Process is hosted and curated by me, Charlie Jensen, and recorded at the UCLA Extension Studios. This season was produced by Jamie Moss. Audio support was provided by Andre Nikolaev. The Writers Program offers courses, certificates, and services that help writers achieve their writing goals one page at a time. For more information, visit writers.uclaextension.edu.